Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, March 17th, and happy No More Snakes in Ireland Day. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am a fan of all things Irish, as you can tell by the beard and the litany of Guinness glasses behind me that you can't see. Um, joining me is my very wonderful co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, how are you on this fine St. Patrick's Day? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. Uh, actual Irish ancestry right here, but since I'm an American, I'm not even going to pretend to be Irish. Exactly. And on behalf of Valentine Hollingsworth, who sailed over from Ireland on the Antelope, we will sail right into today's stories, uh, starting with the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, I know we talk a little bit about space networking here on the Gestalt IT Rundown, but we're actually going to be talking about space software for once. Everyone knows what the space, Hubble Space Telescope is. It is a big telescope in space. Uh, but it did <clears throat> have a little bit of a software glitch last week. On March 7th, the telescope went into safe mode uh, unexpectedly, and uh, there was some kind of a software error. Error. Now, the good news is, is that the whiz kids at NASA were able to bring it back about four days later, which sounds like a lot, except when you remember that the space telescope is at the L2 Lagrangian point, which is a little bit more than a car drive away. Um, the software issue was actually related to an attempt to stabilize the telescope's gyroscopes, which are necessary for it to be able to lock on to those really, really small targets that are super, super far away. And uh, because of that, they're going to roll back the changes and try to fix it another time. However, there was an issue that came up because when this telescope went into safe mode, there's a door that's supposed to swing shut on the telescope's lens in order to protect it from getting blinded by the sun. It, that didn't work. So now they have another issue that they're going to have to troubleshoot, which honestly sounds like the most IT thing ever. Um, Steven, after 30 years in orbit, are we just going to have to be happy with the fact that the telescope has a few glitches and we're just going to have to deal with it until we can launch the James Webb telescope? Yeah, let me tell you, Tom, whenever I hear about space science, whenever I hear about the IT side of space science, my only thought is, oh my gosh, I am so lucky to be in enterprise IT where I can theoretically go into the data center and fix stuff by hand. Um, you know, whether it's a, you know, uh, satellites or a space telescope or, a, you know, extraplanetary lander or whatever, it, it just, every single time, that's that's gotta be, and I think that's probably the thought of everybody listening to the rundown is, oh man, can you imagine having to debug this? Because that's the thing, can you imagine having to debug something where if you screw it up, it will be dead forever and you will have basically cost billions of dollars and set science back by a decade. That's got to be a lot of pressure. Um, I do have to say, I love the fact that they have um, scratch monkeys uh, here on Earth that they can uh, try their experiments on before they uh, send them up into space to see if it's going to work. Um, I also love the aspect of you know the, the inevitable um, decay of everything. Um, so like this door that they that they you know were messing around with. Well, they've never used it. It's been up there for 30 years and it's never been closed. Surprise, doesn't work. Um, frankly, if I were them, I might've said, you know what, we haven't needed it for 30 years. <laughs> Maybe we're not gonna mess with it. I, I think that would be my approach to, uh, to all of these things. But yeah, safe mode, it's a good thing these systems are built well. It's a good thing that they've got great IT staff. And um, 
if I ever meet one of you in a bar, I am going to buy you guys a drink because this is, uh, this is so, this is like peak IT right here. In other news, Tom, uh, the hacker behind the high-profile breaches of accounts belonging to Elon Techno King Musk, uh, Barack, former President Obama, and other companies pled guilty this week. Graham Clark, age 18, agreed to a deal that will see him sentenced to three years in juvie along with the additional three years of probation. He's also barred from using a computer unless given permission by law enforcement. Uh, Clark had already turned over all the Bitcoin he gained in the scam, which saw those verified accounts tweeting links to a wallet controlled by him. Tom, is this the end of the infamous blue check Bitcoin scam of 2020? I hope so, but really the answer is no, because there were two other co-conspirators who are going to see their day in court, and I'm sure they are probably not kids and not going to get a slap on the wrist like uh, our friend here. I did, however, think that it was kind of amusing that Elon Musk should be thanking our, our juvenile friend here, because this is the first test of what uh, an Elon Musk account tweeting about Bitcoin would look like, and I would say that it was wildly successful. He got his friend President Obama to talk about it. Uh, no, really, here's what happened. Um, I think that this really is a slap on the wrists. Um, this man exposed a massive issue with um, some of the controls at Twitter. I mean, for hours, we didn't know, was this an inside job? Was this somebody who had found a, a, a hole in the system? Twitter shut down all of their verified account tweeting capabilities until they could get the hole patch. It was, you know, lock everything down. And he gets three years in juvie and three years probation. Now, granted, if he breaks any of those provisions, he goes to jail for 10 years. And I'm sure it's not gonna be a, a fun little juvenile facility. But I wonder if the deal that he cut in pleading out is so that he's gonna flip on the other folks, even though he's the mastermind, because the government maybe wants to make an example out of them. I don't know how this is gonna proceed and I still think Twitter's got a lot of control problems that they need to deal with. And one kid going to jail for a few years that we'll probably hear later hear the story on Darknet Diaries from Jack Resider is not going to be the solution to this entire problem. All right, Stephen. Um, remember Docker? Well, they just got a new funding round. So Docker secured a $23 million Series B funding round that is specifically focused on the development of a tool suite for container developers. Um, CEO Scott Johnson was making the rounds on the news this week, and he says that the investment will allow former container, uh, the former container giant to execute their developer-focused strategy going forward for several years. Now, the company was sold to Morantis back in 2019, which was huge news. Um, and we all know that the container space has really been challenged significantly by Google and Kubernetes, which has essentially taken over. Even though Kubernetes is not exactly the same as Docker, it's all anybody talks about whenever they talk about containers. Um, Stephen, here's the question that I have. Actually, two questions. One, Docker's still around, huh? And two, what does this mean for their strategy going forward? Is $23 million gonna be enough to get people to swing back into the Docker camp or has that ship already sailed? Well, I think before I answer the question, I have to address the elephant in the room, which is, wait, Docker Series B? What year is this? 
So the answer is, it, we have to be really clear on which Docker we're talking about here. So there was a company called Docker that launched, you know, 10 more, 10 plus, 10 years ago now. Um, that company called Docker raised a Series B in 2014. Uh, they also raised a Series C, a Series D, another Series D, another another Series D, a secondary market offering, and a Series E in 2014, 15, 16, 17 kind of timeframe. So um, that Docker isn't this Docker because that Docker was interested in essentially being the end all be all arbiter of containers and container management, especially for the enterprise. All that stuff is now part of Mirantis. This Docker is kind of new Docker. And new Docker raised a Series A in 2019, November of 2019, and this is their Series B. This is basically a new company. It's recapitalized. It's got a new focus, and its focus is on developers. And you know what? I was a little skeptical last year when I was thinking about the whole Docker thing. And I mean, many of you saw the the uh, episode of the uh, on-premise, yes, I'm using that right, IT Roundtable podcast where we discussed Docker uh, then we had a follow-up episode featuring Docker, where we discussed Docker. Um, they've actually won me over, I have to say. I think this Docker is incredibly smart because essentially the things that are obviated by the shift to Kubernetes are the things that Docker kind of got rid of. The things that are remaining are the things that are actually truly valuable about you know, lowercase d Docker, the thing. And the lowercase d Docker, the thing is actually super relevant to developers. They love it. They love the things that it offers. And Docker basically cleverly shed all the stuff that was about to get wiped away by Superman Kubernetes. So essentially, this new Docker is actually in pretty good shape. Uh, they're selling support. Uh, apparently, their revenues are up. And they've raised a Series B from non-stupid people. So I'm going to go on a limb here, and I'm going to say, this actually makes sense and I'm good with it. Does that surprise everybody? It surprised me to say it. Well, after last year, I don't think that anyone's really surprised anymore when we kind of take a contrarian position, maybe not the right term, but when something surprises us pleasantly for once. Um, speaking of pleasant surprises, we've got a couple of stories that we wanted to dive a little bit deeper into um, looking through the news this week. I'm going to go ahead and kick it off with probably one of the biggest stories that was not a surprise at all, because uh, we mentioned it last week. Uh, you may remember a story that involves some cookies from Pepperidge Farm, but uh, the IT industry has been waiting for months to see the next generation server platform from AMD and Intel. And well, the wait's half over now because this week AMD announced Milan, the third generation Epic server CPU platform based on the Zen 3 architecture. And as expected, Milan offers a 15 to 20% IPC performance bump over previous generations thanks to bigger L3 caches and some other optimizations. But that's a direct swap-in replacement to previous Epic processors. Is this a major upgrade? And what does it mean for the market leader in this case, Intel? You know, when you buy a package of Pepperidge Farm Milan cookies and you're looking at them on the label and you're like, man, those look good. And then you take one out and you're like, man, that looks good. And you bite into it and you're like, this thing tastes a little bit like sawdust with sort of like Nutella in the middle of it and not enough. Well, frankly, that's my reaction to the Milan announcement. Um, it really looked good and it probably is pretty good. 
but it's super underwhelming. Let me just explain. Um, AMD basically announced what we thought they were going to announce. They announced a Zen 3 version of Epic, and, um, and it's basically a little bit better. And it's a little bit better here, and it's a little bit better there, and it's a little bit better over there. But frankly, that's about all it is, is a little bit better. And this is great. This is fine. I'm thrilled that AMD decided to do this and that they uh, have announced this thing. But frankly, it's not really a huge upgrade. To me, the big story here is the fact that along with this upgrade, AMD focused on, uh, so there's two things. Number one, AMD focuses on, is focusing on the high-end market, which is the many cores, which by the way was the code name of a previous AMD processor, the many cores market. Um, and number two, the prices are insane and not in a good way. The, these things are super expensive. Now we can't say how much the OEMs are gonna be paying for these things and the cloud providers, but um, suffice to say that AMD is no longer the budget alternative to Intel. AMD is offering the highest end, highest server pr processors at the highest price. And they offer 15 to 20% better performance than the previous one. Cool, I guess. Frankly, I feel like this is actually good news for Intel because Intel now has a little bit of the pressure and the uncertainty, the FUD off of them. And so whenever Intel decides to release their next generation Xeon uh, codename Ice Lake, which uh, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb is going to say pretty soon now, considering that AMD has now gotten Milan out of the way. Um, I think that Intel actually has some of the pressure off of them. And not only that, but I think that this means that there's actually a pretty good chance that Ice Lake is going to be a compelling product. Because frankly, we know that Intel is putting, well, if we're going to base Ice Lake on what we've seen on the server or the, the desktop CPUs, we know that it's going to get PCIe Gen 4. We know that it's going to get more PCIe lanes and, and, and bandwidth because that's kind of what they did on the other processors. So essentially, Ice Lake Xeon, uh, the next generation Xeon, whenever it gets announced, is probably going to be a much bigger upgrade than Epic. And not only that, but Intel will probably be pretty competitive at all levels of the market underneath the massive many, many, many core level. And what this means is that suddenly, what had looked like a blowout for AMD is now looking like an actual horse race with Intel probably offering competitive products, probably at lower prices and probably able to compete until the real upgrade. The real upgrade comes in 2022 when both AMD and Intel are expected to release actual next generation server products with PCIe Gen 5 and CXL and all sorts of other cool stuff. And by then, Intel will have had Pat Gelsinger in charge for a couple of years. Um, I think there's a good chance that uh, this is a stumble for AMD, not a lurch forward. What do you think, Tom? It kind of reminds me of uh, when Apple is on their design train and the S series phones get released. You know, they look the same as last year's phones. They're about 15 to 20% faster and everyone is clamoring for it to come out because they're so excited to see what's going to be on it. And then when it looks exactly like the last one, but it's a little, it's a slightly faster horse that eats less hay. Everyone's like, well, that's kind of boring. Why did we, why were we so excited for that? The answer is, is because we get excited for new technology. But what we get excited for is these crazy, amazing, like little features that get packed in. And you don't get that in a processor. It's a piece under the hood 
of a thing that looks boring, but still allows me to order my Uber or my DoorDash a little bit faster. And that ultimately is the thing. This very much feels like if, if we all harken back to Intel's TikTok strategy, you know, let's build a thing and then let's build it with a better process that runs a little cooler and a little faster. That This is the talk for AMD. So normally what you do is you'd reduce the cost to try to get it out there, especially because you want people to update and, and, and get your margins up so that when you release the tick next year, it's going to have a lot of really cool features on it. But yeah, I... I, I really don't know because like what the, the, the new Epic is like what 64 cores and, and, and we know that AMD has been chasing the, the multi-core performance for years because that's kind of where they've been killing Intel over and over again, but, but they've got to wait for the software to catch up eventually. And, and as we're seeing with Intel and, and honestly now with the, the rise of ARM processors kind of saying, well, why would you need that many cores? And we could just give you a whole bunch of ARM chips that are dedicated to running those. Um, it's it's going to be hard to convince software developers to keep writing multi-core aware applications and hoping that you're going to be able to keep selling these monstrosities and not get eaten alive by cheaper, faster, smaller processors. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a good upgrade. And uh, Zen 3 is great. Um, I've got a Zen 3 desktop CPU. I love it. Um, it's really fast, really, you know. It's it's a great uh, great processor, great technology, great everything. It's just like you said, this is basically the uh, <laughs> AMD iPhone 12s, and you're like, cool, okay, thanks, uh, thanks for that. Also, I, I'll just uh, throw a little plug in here. I'm actually uh, recorded a bit of an editorial about this for the uh, Gestalt IT checksum later in this week. If you guys want to come back to Gestalt IT, you'll see a a little bit longer uh, coverage of this topic. But let's move along uh, to another big story that's been in the news, and this has made national news. Um, a fire at uh, OVH Cloud, a French cloud hosting provider, uh, caused several website outages. The company is the largest competitor at AWS and Azure in Europe and has announced plans for an IPO just two days before the fire knocked out the <laughs> SBG2 facility, along with four rooms in SBG1. Among the websites knocked offline were uh, the UK Vehicle Certification Agency, uh, French government sites, and approximately 36% of the command and control servers for malware, like APT39 and Charming Kitten. Uh, Tom, you recently wrote about the outage and how it could impact companies uh, thinking the cloud is always up. What does this outage represent for companies uh, looking to embrace public cloud? I believe the term you're looking for is wake up call because a lot of folks didn't realize that when you buy infrastructure as a service from a public cloud provider, you are buying essentially an electrical connection and a server and you can do whatever you want with it, which is the flexibility that we enjoy. But you know what you're not buying? Backup and recovery, replication, anything that require that is needed for your data to exist in multiple different places. And I think that that was one of the biggest things that came out of this story last week was not the fire because these things happen. I mean, the fact that it knocked out an entire data center for OVH Cloud is, is terrible, but it's that people didn't understand that you don't just magically get your data to move between places. I mean, how many of us on this uh, news thing have ever used vMotion. It was really awesome, right? I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of people who have told me that vMotion was the, the watershed moment when they realized how powerful virtualization was. 
Yeah, but do you know what you needed to do in order to make the motion work properly? You needed to have your servers configured correctly with the right settings. You needed to have some kind of a layer two interconnect between those two locations. I mean, I spent years of my career fighting stretched layer two data center interconnect simply because everybody shrugged their shoulders and went, eh, vMotion. Um, you don't get that in the cloud. Sorry, that if you want it, you've got to pay for it. And I think that that's the biggest story here is that a lot of people were using OVH cloud for one of two reasons. One, it's a European hosting provider, which means it's outside of the purview of Amazon and Microsoft and the US government. And two, it was cheap. And when you are basing your decisions based on what the cheapest public cloud hosting provider is, you're not usually thinking about things like backup and recovery or you know uh, reliability and uh, responsiveness when something gets knocked offline. I mean, how many times have we seen US East One have a problem and suddenly people realize, well, all of those mechanisms that I had in place to make sure that all of my stuff spins up on US West One didn't work. I mean, we even talked about it with the Hubble telescope earlier in the show with the, the door not swinging down like it was supposed to, except we can test this stuff Let's just knock out the the uh, communications to primary node one and see if primary node two wakes up. But if you're like my favorite one was the guy who was hosting a public grand theft auto online server, and he was mad at OVH cloud because they couldn't get his server back up and running in a couple of hours. And I'm like, they're cleaning like foam out of the data center right now. Like they're trying to vent the halon out of here, which reportedly the halon didn't work the way it was supposed to. Um, and you're worried that because you didn't back your server up that it won't be online anytime soon? Brother, your priorities are all kinds of out of whack. But yeah, I mean, Stephen, what do you think about this? Is this is this a problem that people really need to address in the public cloud? Because I think that they have this mysterious idea that public cloud is always gonna be available and I don't need to do anything. And I don't think it's gonna work like that. Yeah, I think that uh, the mo one thing we need to keep in mind here is that the cloud ain't magic. And um, just because your thing is in the cloud, in parentheses, doesn't necessarily mean that it is, uh, you know, going to be continually available um, and that you don't need to worry about architecture. Uh, you still need to worry about application architecture. You still need multiple availability zones and so on. And this is actually, um, I'll just call one thing out that you talked about, which is basically this idea of data sovereignty. The fact that you've got your data in a uh, service provider in France uh, well, that's uh, increasingly a requirement for some companies to have uh, data in a sovereign territory. And uh, actually, that was a, we saw a great presentation about that at Cloud Field Day 10 last week. So if you want to search on uh, the uh, Tech Field Day YouTube channel, you'll see a video on data sovereignty that does a really nice job of laying out the issue in a you know, non-product kind of way. But um, one of the considerations when you're looking at data sovereignty is you still need high availability, which means you still need multiple zones within that region. And that can cause problems for people in certain regions. Now, France is a big country and Europe is a big place, which means that I could seriously understand that you can have multiple availability zones in Europe. But what if your data sovereignty requirement was Ireland or Switzerland or Singapore? can you really have multiple availability zones there? And if you do, are they actually just located right next door to each other and both gonna catch fire, which is kind of what happened here? So we gotta keep these things in mind and we have to make sure that, um, you know, whatever cloud application we're architecting is going to be truly high, highly available. Yeah, the, the cloud still has challenges that we all need to solve. Um, news and film at 11, 
unless it was sorted in uh, SG, SBG2, in which case it'll probably be a little bit later than that. All right, Stephen, we got one more story, and it's, uh, it's a storage story, so I'm sure you're super, super happy about that. Um, Micron Technology announced this week that they are getting out of the business of 3D Crosspoint. The memory technology, which was jointly developed by, uh, with Intel, is a huge feature of the Intel Optane line of persistent memory storage. Micron announced that they're going to be phasing out production and they're going to be selling the Utah production facility that is making the chips. Um, the Mar Micron has said that the reason why they're doing this is that the market for persistent memory, specifically 3D Crosspoint, is pretty small. So small, in fact, that it doesn't justify the huge amount of money that they're having to throw in to do the research and keep the chips being manufactured and things like that. Um, Intel has also seen some losses on the Optane side of the house as they've ramped it up and tried to get it into, into the, the modern IT landscape. But remember, there's a big difference between Intel, which is a multi-billion dollar company, and Micron, which $400 million is a huge chunk of change, which is a, reportedly what they're going to save by the time that they reduce their exposure to 3D Crosspoint and get rid of the facility, because uh, they're going to be selling it. Um, the facility in Utah will, however, continue to produce chips because they do have those agreements with Intel that they're going to do that. And Intel is looking to possibly move their production to a, a Dalian China NAND facility, which was not part of the sale of all of their storage, consumer storage business to SK Hynix um, a few months ago. They specifically kept the Optane business for themselves. But there's also the possibility that when Micron puts that building up for sale, Intel could just walk in and be like, yeah, we're going to keep this, uh, just change the name on the outside, since they're already doing the production anyway. Um, so Stephen, you've been a huge follower of 3D Crosspoint for a number of years, and uh, you probably know as much about the story as anyone who doesn't work at Intel. Uh, what does this ultimately mean for Intel, though? Because like, you know, Micron was basically the production arm of 3D Crosspoint Optane, and they're saying, you know what, we're done. Yeah, we're looking at um, an interesting uh, game of corporate handball here. Um, so just as a quick recap, uh, Intel and Micron are uh, historic competitors. And Micron is, by the way, a multi-billion dollar company as well, but not as big as Intel. Um, historically, Micron and Intel have butted heads over many different technologies, um, including memory, uh, DRAM, and uh, flash. And then uh, Intel and Micron ba basically got together to build a joint fab, a joint venture company called IMFT, Intel Micron FT, in uh, Lehigh, Utah. And it essentially was a, a facility making chips for both companies um, here in the United States. Um, this uh, joint venture uh, was uh, basically a predecessor to Intel and Micron also working together on 3D Crosspoint, which they did. They developed this technology together. Um, and for those of you who don't know, 3D Crosspoint is essentially, uh, think of it as sort of a hybrid between RAM and Flash. In, in other words, it's a persistent memory technology like Flash, but it's fast and bit addressable like RAM. And so theoretically, you know, in the hierarchy of computing, you know, where you've got, you know, RAM up here and storage down here, and then maybe Flash is kind of here, uh, 3D Crosspoint fits kind of in the middle. Uh, Intel, by the way, 3D Crosspoint is Intel's name for the technology. Um, Micron uh, never really popularized their thing, which, uh, you know, I actually don't even remember what they called it, but uh, it was never produced. It was never sold in production. The only product was an enterprise SSD, which is 
basically the this thing, not the this thing in my memory hierarchy. So it wasn't really a compelling product. It wasn't really an offering for Micron yet. Um, 3D Crosspoint has had a bit of a struggle in the market of ideas, if not in the systems architecture world. Essentially, this technology is pretty valuable in um, high-end, you know, proprietary systems, you know, in the cloud, in, you know, really high-end, um, you know, business systems, things that you don't really know or see or hear about. And Intel has actually done a pretty good job of moving this technology through there using the Octane brand name. So Optane essentially means 3D Crosspoint, um, except from a product standpoint. The problem is that Optane plays in multiple places in this stack as well, and that's been super confusing to the market too. So when people say, oh, where you know, this server uses Optane, it's like, which Optane? Um, and that's kind of the situation. You know, Intel has done a fairly good job selling this thing. Um, I'm not sure if they're making money on it yet, but they're into their second generation of 3D crosspoint technology. Apparently they hit some roadblocks in terms of uh, production uh, early on, but they seem to work that out um, in the Micron fab. Uh, Micron and Intel had a big divorce uh, recently where uh, the whole thing basically fell apart. Micron ended up walking away with the fab uh, they shared the technology. Well, now Micron's saying, forget it. We don't even want that technology. Um, we don't want that fab. So the question here is kind of what happens next? Well, the, the easy answer is Micron is out of the 3D crosspoint world. And that's probably good for Micron because they, they never really fit in there anyway. Like I said, they never really did anything with this technology. And it's probably best for them just to walk away instead of continually pouring money down that drain. Um, the bigger question is sort of what does this mean for Intel? And I think that uh, Intel actually has a lot of options here. Uh, again, they're, they're a big company. They've got a lot of resources and they can produce uh, 3D crosspoint chips on their own with some investment and lead time. So Intel has a few options here. Number one, they could move production to their Dalian China plant where, the, where they're already making flash chips. But if you remember, we talked a little bit about this where Intel already spun off their flash storage business, including the Dalian plant to SK Hynix. So frankly, if I was Intel, I would not be all that thrilled about that unless that was by far the cheapest option. So that's first option. Um, another option is uh, Intel is already producing prototype uh, 3D cross point at a, a fab in Rio Rancho, New Mexico, which is a smaller operation but theoretically they could spin up that operation and continue to produce 3D Crosspoint here in the US. Probably the simplest and cheapest and most straightforward option would be for them to just buy the Lehigh fab from Micron, which again, they already own. So it's not like they're buying somebody else's thing and then they have to kind of like move into the house. Like their furniture is already there. Like the, the TiVo already has their programs on it, right? They could just like move in and, and start living there. And, and that would probably be the easiest option. The reason they might not do that is because basically that fab is a little bit older and a little bit behind the times. And if Intel buys it, then they're kind of stuck with the white elephant of you know, the old tube TV and that old sofa that's got the cat scratches all over it. So Intel might just decide, forget this, you know, we're just gonna get new furniture in our, in our uh, Rio Rancho plant. Or they could just say, you know what? We're gonna take maybe an easy way. We're gonna produce this stuff in Dalian, which Intel still owns until this whole Hynix thing happens and goes through, which is gonna take a few years. Intel could say, you know what? We're just gonna produce this stuff there for the time being and kind of kick the ball down the road. 
But regardless of what Intel chooses, this is not bad news for Intel because frankly, they've got the technology. They're already working on the third generation Crosspoint. They're already selling Crosspoint Optane products all over the place, even though you don't see them too much. And even though they're not in the consumer space, they're in the enterprise space and they're selling pretty well. So Intel's fine. This was a good idea for Microsoft and there's nothing to see here, folks. Move along. Yes, the, the wheels of technology turn, 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 especially when two companies decide that they want to do something together and then decide later that they don't. So here's hoping that we can get all of this figured out somewhere down the road. And I'm sure we'll be bringing it up on another great episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown, which you can see every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time on our YouTube channel. Um, you can also uh, check us out uh, on the mornings that we do the recordings. We uh, will often do a Clubhouse session. Uh, so if you're on Clubhouse, then uh, you can uh, mosey on over. Uh, make sure you follow the Gestalt IT Club so you know when we're recording and you can maybe give your perspective on the news a little bit. Um, if you're not on Clubhouse, um, hit us up. We, we have a couple of invites and we'll definitely be willing to uh, bring you on in. Um, but we have uh, busy weeks ahead. Um, Steven, what are some of the things that you're gonna be working on over the next couple of weeks so that people kind of know what your schedule it looks like and what content they can be expecting from you? Well, thanks, Tom. Um, well, the one thing that I'd like to call out is uh, we did have Cloud Field Day last week, and there's a ton of videos up um, right now on uh, youtube.com slash techfieldday. So please do tune in for those videos and check out the presentations from Cloud Field Day, especially, like I said, the one on data sovereignty is super relevant to the conversation we had today. So again, you can find that on youtube.com slash techfieldday. Also, you can find me every Tuesday on the Utilizing AI podcast, which is a podcast where we talk about applications of AI in the enterprise tech space. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. And uh, also, like I said, I did record an episode of the Checksum uh, here for publication this week where we dive a little bit further into the AMD announcements. So please do check out the Checksum and the Conversations, which is sort of our uh, editorial productions here at Gestalt IT. Now, next week, Tom, I believe that there's something going on and there's a little switcheroo going on that might be familiar uh, with a familiar face to utilizing AI listeners. You want to fill us in on that? Sure thing. So next week, I'm going to be a little bit busy because we've got security field day um, and I'm going to be embroiled in all things of people being protected from being hacked and all kinds of other crazy stuff. And that takes so much attention that I'm not going to be able to be a part of the rundown. However, we did find a suitable co-host, and that would be Mr. Chris Grundeman, who uh, utilizing AI podcast listeners will know uh, as one of uh, Stephen's partners in crime. So um, Stephen and Chris are going to be bringing you all of the exciting news happening um, in mid-March. Uh, hopefully uh, it's less Caesar and more excitingness. Um, but, you know, we, uh, we invite you to, uh, you know, take part in Security Field Day, which will be starting on Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time. Um, you know, take a break for the rundown, uh, check out the news stories, and then come back to us. Um, I've also got a Conversations episode posting this week on uh, nation state hacking. So I'm, I'm hoping that some nation states uh, don't pay any attention to anything that I say and don't take it personally because I really don't want to get my Hotmail account hacked. Um, but, you know, we've got some exciting security stuff coming up and there's a lot of other things that are, are going to be filling our calendars for the next few weeks. So definitely want to make sure you stay tuned to that, both on uh, gestaltit.com, where you're going to see a lot of the coverage that we're putting out about those uh, items and techfieldday.com, which is, well, Stephen and I's kind of day job um, alongside Gestalt IT, where we appear on camera like this and introduce great 
presenters and wonderful delegates to discuss all of those things. Um, speaking of which, please make sure you set your calendars for a next Wednesday so that you will be able to tune in for another great episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown, where we bring you all of the news that is important and we try to weed out the stuff that nobody cares about. Um, but for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for the inevitable Mr. Stephen Foskett, and all of the great folks here at Gestalt IT, we want to thank you very much for tuning in and enjoy the rest of your St. Patrick's Day.